few years ago, I drove 800 miles one day to have revival meetings. And I got up and I told the congregation that if, if it worked out that I'd like to have something for the youth on Saturday night. And everybody just kind of, oh, okay, that, that's good. So I went back to the house where I was staying and my phone buzzed and here it was the deacon. He says, you, you might want to change your mind because we having volleyball tournaments that day. And I said, oh, you what? You mean I drove 800 miles for this? But they did. And so they wanted me to change it to Friday night so they could play volleyball all day Saturday. And they that remaineth came. I have something I'd like to share to the youth. Are you have volleyball tournaments Saturday? No, sir. No, you're not. Okay, I'm good. Fair enough. Saturday night. <clears throat> now, if something comes up that is of legitimate concern, let me know. Okay, children. I taught you a little rhyme last night. Do you know what it was? How about the little lady there in the sweater with the blue dress with the bun? Yeah, you. No, stand up, stand up. There you go. What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end will be? Perfect. I'd give you a star if I had one. <laughs> Very good. Remember that. All right, I have one for tonight. And this one has been very helpful to me all my life. There is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. Okay, let's say it together. There is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. Now, <clears throat> you passed. I'm going to ask somebody else tomorrow night. Uh, I don't know your names, but I know the colors of your shirts and sweaters, so... There is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. That was true back whenever, and it's still true today. What I want to share with you tonight is I've entitled, What is Your Inheritance Worth? And uh, <clears throat> I want to keep the children's interest. And so if you will allow me, you listen to me read 1 Kings 21, and I'm going to read it in the contemporary English version, which is about a sixth grade level. And uh, you'll be able to understand it too. And this is the story of Naboth and King Ahab. Now Naboth owned a vineyard in Jezreel near King Ahab's palace. And one day Ahab said, Naboth, your vineyard is near my palace. Give it to me so I can turn it into a vegetable garden. And I'll give you a better vineyard, or I'll pay you whatever you want for yours. And Naboth answered, Well, this vineyard has always been in my family. I won't let you have it. So Ahab went home, and he was angry and depressed because of what Naboth had told him. And he laid on his bed just staring at the wall, refusing to eat. Do you ever do that? Now Jezebel, his wife, came in and said, What's wrong? Why won't you eat? 
Well, I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or let me give him a better one, Ahab replied, and he told me he couldn't do it. Well, aren't you the king of Israel, Jezebel asked. Get out to bed and eat something. Don't worry, I'll get Naboth's vineyard for you. And Jezebel wrote a letter to each of the leaders of the town where Naboth lived. And in the letters, this is what she said. Call everyone together and tell them to go without eating today. And then when they come together, give Naboth a seat right down front here. And then have two liars set across from him and swear that Naboth has cursed God and the king. And then take Naboth outside and stone him to death. And she signed Ahab's name on the letters and sealed them with his seal. And then she sent them to all the town leaders. And after receiving her letters, they did exactly what she asked. She told them, they told the people that it was a day to go without eating. And when they all came together, they seated Naboth right down here in the front. And they put two liars in the, across from Naboth. And they accused him of cursing God and the king. So the people dragged Naboth outside and they stoned him to death. Now the leaders of Jezreel sent a message back to Jezebel and said, Naboth's dead. And as soon as Jezebel got the message about Nahab, she told Ahab, now you can go have that vineyard Naboth refused to sell you. He's dead. So Ahab, he hops up and went over to take over the vineyard. And then the Lord said to Elijah the prophet, King Ahab of Israel is in Naboth's vineyard right now. He's trying to take it over. You go tell him what I say. Ahab, you murdered Naboth and took his property. And so in the very spot where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they're going to lick up your blood. And when Elijah found him, Ahab said, So my enemy, you found me at last. And Elijah answered, Yes, I did. Ahab, you have managed to do everything that the Lord hates, and now you will be punished. You and every man and boy in your family will die, whether they're slave or free, and your whole family will be wiped out, just like the families of King Jeroboam and King Basha. And they made the Lord very angry by sinning and causing the Israelites to sin. And as far as Jezebel... Dogs will eat her body out there in Jezreel, and dogs will also eat the bodies of your relatives who die in the town, and buzzards will eat the bodies of those who die in the country. And when Ahab heard this, he tore his clothes, and he wore sackcloth day and night, and he was depressed and refused to eat. Sometime later the Lord said, Elijah, do you see how sorry Ahab is for what he did? I won't punish his family while he's still alive. I'll wait until his son is the king. Now no one was more determined than Ahab to disobey the Lord. And Jezebel encouraged him, and worst of all, he worshipped idols, just as the Amorites had done before the Lord had forced them out of the land and gave it to Israel. And so here we have the account of the unfortunate end of Naboth. Most of us have heard this story from 
Sunday school, summer Bible school, or or mother's Bible storybook growing up. It's it's we've all heard it. But there are several things that maybe we could learn from this thing. And we could start with talking about covetousness and the lesson that should be learned from the example of Ahab. He was looking over at Naboth's vineyard and he was admiring it as he sat on the porch drinking the sweet tea and sweet cakes, you know. Was there anything wrong with him doing that? Not really. You know, it, it seems for him to be out on the porch and enjoy the scenery, to observe someone else's, uh, the results or the fruits of someone else's labors, and to hop down off the porch and go over and commend Ahab on his nice crop of grapes coming on and his vines were heavy with sweet, swelling fruit and you know, just to have a neighborly visit would have been perfectly in order. You know, maybe they talked about the price of wine on the Jerusalem Board of Trade. I don't know what they talked about, but we were they were neighbors. But one day, thoughts of greed and envy took place in his heart, and he fed and nourished those wrong thoughts until one day it wasn't just good enough for him to sit on the porch and uh, look at God had provided for Naboth, he decided that he wanted it for himself. He wouldn't be happy until the records in the courthouse said that this property belonged to King Ahab. Perhaps we could take a lesson from Naboth about the consequences of missed opportunities. You know, not being on the ball when you could have a better farm, better dirt, more yield potential. Or maybe it could have been the opportunity to cash out and travel and take it easy. Maybe he could build him a second home up in the mountains or by the lake. He'd worked hard and he'd earned it. And now he owed himself to enjoy it. At least that seems quite typical of many affluent Anabaptist families today. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned about the slippery slope. And what peril we put our hearts and families into when we tolerate or maybe become accepting of a culture and customs and approval of the ungodly people around us. Where do we get the cues that we determine our values and choices, either in our conduct or who we want to identify with? We'll notice in the chapter that I just read, in verse 25, it says this, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by his wife Jezebel. You know, the Bible says that Ahab was the vilest of all the kings of Israel. There was none like him before. Totally sold out to uh, both immorality and spiritual idolatry. And he led Israel away from God. We also read in verse 4 of that same chapter that Ahab went home angry and depressed because what Naboth had told him. And he just laid on his bed, stared at the wall, and pouted, refusing to eat. How old was this man anyway? Four or five? Two, you see those kind of people at Piggly Wiggly. Uh, you know, they did, mama didn't buy them something, so they throw themselves on the floor and kick and pout. I wish I had time to tell you about Larry Fomer in the first grade. But 
I just I have to keep moving. <clears throat> the lesson I want us to learn tonight is that Naboth was a principled man, a man that was true to the teaching and spiritual customs of his forefathers. Alas, there is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. Listen. And Naboth answered, This vineyard has always been in my family. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, all of us have inherited some things, some more and some less. I have here an old hickory butcher knife. And I don't know if any of y'all are into antiques or antiques or whatever y'all want to call it. <clears throat> Rollin, you like knives? What would you give me for that knife? Fifty bucks? The best I have. Most people are down there about fifty cents or seventy-five cents. Norvin? What would you give me for that knife? Five bucks. You say it's pretty old. Uh, three handles and two blades later. But no, I think it's the, the original equipment. But This knife doesn't really stir your heart, does it? It doesn't mean much to you. You see, my father gave it to me. And his mother, my grandmother Vera, gave it to him. She butchered a lot of turkeys with this thing. I have 66 first cousins, and they would probably fight me for this. I never told them I have it. <laughs> it means nothing to you because you don't know my grandmother. Maybe some of you did. But that was grandmother's knife. Is it okay, Nathan, if I just... Take it to the flea market? I shouldn't. I should do, when I pass, should I offer it to my siblings or my cousins? What's, it, what's your inheritance worth? I do have one cousin that's an antique dealer. His name is Sheldon Russell, and he lives in Petersburg, West Virginia. Uh, he, he, he watches me closely. <laughs> uh, here's another knife. You can see how it's ground down. Uh, 40? 30? It's worthless to you all. Except that it has a lot of use. This was my mother's knife. When my parents passed... And they put all the stuff out on the tables um, for the grandchildren to pick through. And well, I think the siblings got to pick through it first. And, you know, my sisters, they, they were like ravens. They went for stuff that sparkled, all the glass and crystal. And how much stuff of that can you use? And I come down the table and I saw my mom's knife and I just took it. Nobody wanted it. It was, to grandchildren, it was worthless. Well, who needs a butcher now? We buy our chicken at Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> or 
Kentucky Fried Chicken. We don't need a knife. David, should I take this to the flea market? Because you know where it came from. But before I told you, it was just an old knife. Well, this wine jug started out in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia somewhere in the late 1800s. My great-grandfather was the deacon. And, um, and then my grandfather was the deacon after him. And then my father was the deacon after him, and then I after my father. And so I have a set of these chugs, and I use them twice a year at our church. And um, I inherited the basket of stuff that, that went across the mountains of West Virginia on horseback, the plates and the, uh, the communion cups. And I have several first cousins who are deacons, and I gave some of them, but I kept the wine jugs. We're fixing to have a deacon ordination in about six weeks. And I, I've got three boys there, but I don't know that they'll be the ones that... But when I'm done, you know, there's going to be a new deacon in our church. And so this is family property. It's not church property. This was passed down. And I was at the bank church not too long ago up in Harrisonburg. And, and I was sharing this there one Sunday morning. And, and Philip Wanger, he kept going around me and going around me and taking pictures and he thinks that they ought to put it in the glass case in the back of the church there where all the rest of their idols are, you know, their brass serpents. And he thinks that thing needs to come back to the valley. You know, everything's better up there, you know. And I said, no, it ain't coming back. Mr. Martin, should I take this to the flea market? It's, it's about 130 years old probably. Um, Civil War era. Um, I still use it. I don't know how people get their grape juice to church. You got to have one of them things, you know, don't you? I can give it away, but I can never sell it. It would be irreverent or disrespectful. And the same with these knives, they're just old knives. But, I want to tell you this evening that there's some things in your life that are way too precious to take to the flea market. And so I want to talk a bit about <clears throat> inheritance. There are some things that are just way too sacred to sell. You know, Naboth enjoyed growing grapes there by the king's palace. And he could see all the carriages come in and the entourages from dignitaries all over the world. The powerful and the famous came in to conduct government business probably. And maybe he was the recipient of the leftovers from the yard lawn parties and barbecues that the king would host with heads of state. I don't know. No doubt Ahab and King, king Ahab and Naboth were on a first name basis. And we know in verse 2 of chapter 21 that Ahab goes over to the vineyard and says, Hey, Naboth, 
your vineyard here, you know, it's right by my palace, it's by my place I need, I mean, I want a place to grow some okra and tomatoes, lima beans and watermelons. I'll give you a fine, nice vineyard somewhere else, maybe on some river bottom land, you know, really good soil. And maybe you want to choose a terraced place up on the side of the mountain so that you can look down across the valley and watch everybody and and you can watch the fireworks on the 4th of July, you know, from your vineyard. And, and so I ask you again, what is your inheritance worth? You and I are the recipients of a spiritual heritage, the gift of eternal life, and what is it worth to you? Naboth and his sons lost their life defending and staying true to the commitments of their ancestral lands as stewards and caretakers of it. I want to read 2 Kings 9, 25 and 26. And Jehu commanded his assistant Bidkar, get Jerome's body and throw it in the field that Naboth used to own. Do you remember when you and I used to ride side by side by Joram's father Ahab? And it was then that the Lord swore to Ahab that he would be punished in the same field where he killed Naboth and his sons. So throw Joram's body over there, just as the Lord said. His sons. Did you know that Ahab's sons got killed too? I mean, uh, Naboth's sons? That's what it told us. In the same field where he killed Naboth and his sons because Naboth could not take possession of the vineyard, King Ahab, I'm sorry, until there was no heirs. And so he took the boys out too. We just don't get all that information in chapter 21. And so Naboth and his sons gave their life to protect the inheritance of their forefathers. I want to talk a little bit about the inheritance in the Old Testament to kind of help us to understand that thing. So following the children of Israel's entrance into Canaan or the promised land, that was God's gift to his people for generations to come. And it was understood in the Sinaiic covenants that they were the keepers of this property. They were the stewards of it. They were not the owners. The real estate belonged to God. And they were just there to take care of it. And so we have the stories in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua, the records of how they divided all this up and the different allotments to the different tribes and the family clans and how it went. <clears throat> and so the allotment of land went to the families and not to individuals. There was no personal deeds at the courthouse in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, or Samaria, or wherever. It was always the clan of Reuben. Or the clan of, not Levi, they didn't own land. <clears throat> all right. The eldest son got double of all the others. Why was that? All right. They didn't have the great society back then and a welfare system and, and food stamps and social programs like we have today. And often men died young. And so they would, the eldest son would inherit 
a double portion so that he had land, another couple acres, to feed his widowed mother and his younger siblings. The rest of the siblings got everything equal, but the eldest son always got. Now, if there was no sons, the land went to the daughters. And if there was no daughters, the land went to the deceased man's brothers. And so if Nathan passed and he didn't have any sons or daughters, then David got your daddy's land. I know his name, but I can't say it. But you know who I mean. That's how it was. <clears throat> if there were no brothers on the uncle's side, then it went... Let me see. If no brothers, then it went to the uncles on dad's side. And so if Nathan didn't have any brothers, it went to your dad's brothers and their descendants. So it stayed in the good family. And finally, if there were no uncles to the next of kin, it went to the closest nephews. And so in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, we understand the dilemma. All the men in Naomi's life were no longer living. They had all passed down in Moab. And so the next of kin is probably a nephew of the, her deceased husband, Elimelech. Now Boaz is the first in line to have children with his aunt. And there was this other guy that the Bible refers to as kinsman redeemer. I don't know that that was his name, but that's what they call him. And he was likely an older cousin to Boaz. He was ahead in the line of inheritance to take over Elimelech's property to see that that land was taken care of and fed Elimelech's descendants. Now, fortunately for Boaz and Kinsman's Redeemer, Aunt Naomi was beyond childbearing years, and so Ruth, the Moabitess, becomes the surrogate through who being the mother to bring life to the family of Elimelech, and later on to David and on down to you and I. And we'll get to that a little later. <clears throat> you know, Kinsman Redeemer, he was pretty excited. He was a pretty happy chap about the possibility of taking on Elimelech's farm. And then Boaz says, well, you know, you get the girl too. He goes, I'll pass. <laughs> and so that's how that story goes. Naboth knew that Ahab's offer to buy that vineyard was against the law. For him, it was sin. He was the caretaker of it. He was not the owner. He couldn't get rid of it. But he cared for it with the honor of his life. Only the Levite clan was not allocated land in the Old Testament. And so we know how that works. The other was, would farm and support the Levites as they took care of the things of God. Sometimes the land was passed down to the daughters. And then there was a stipulation to those girls. If this young lady here, or then you pink sweater there, you're a shrock, 
and you inherited the Schrock clan's land up where you all live, do you realize that you could only marry a Schrock? But if you didn't have any land attached to it, you could marry a, a Yoder or a Weaver or, God forbid, a heat wall. But <laughs> when you inherited your people's land, you had to stay in your clan. That was the way God kept one clan from taking over another and getting too strong. He had it all figured out, and Naboth knew this. You can read that in Numbers chapter 36, verse 7 through 9. It tells about the girls having to marry within their own tribe if land was attached to them. I want to talk now about the inheritance of the New Testament. Inheritance in the New Testament is no longer attached to the children of Israel, but to Christ himself. And as believers in Christ, we share a sense of belonging to God's children by adoption, not by status or money or ancestry or descendants of the biblical Abraham. We learned that in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, so that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We are heirs of Christ. And then in Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. We are just as much a part of the family of God now as Isaac and Jacob, Esau, or not Esau, but you, you know what I mean. A Christian's inheritance is no longer tied to a piece of real estate in the land of Canaan. Where is the real estate of the kingdom of God? There is real estate, but where is it? It's in the hearts of you and I, his followers. In Matthew 5 through 10, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know it has a story about the separation of the sheep and the goats and you know that sad time when that is, and it says, Come, take your inheritance, which is prepared for you since the creation of the world. Since the creation of the world, God has made a place for you and I, the dirty Gentiles. That one day, because of the faithfulness of Naboth and his people, protecting their ancestral lands, their spiritual inheritance, that we are heirs of that. <laughs> Colossians 1.12, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of saints in life. J.I. Packer says this, and I quote, Justification is the truly dramatic transition from the state of a condemned criminal waiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir waiting a fabulous inheritance. And we've all been there, and if you haven't, you should. We were all condemned in our sins and unrighteousness. But through the work of Jesus, we become heirs of a promise of eternal life. And so I ask you, what is your inheritance worth? There are requirements to receive this promised gift of eternal life. And there will be consequences for those who do not take God's word and holy living seriously. 
1 Corinthians 9, verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God. And I want to tell you this evening, beware of false doctrine and bad theology. And it will not be easy to raise faithful families in this perverse and twisted values of our broken and godless Western societies. We talked about that last night. <clears throat> you know, we live in a time when our leaders are very bad examples. Um, our former president boasted of his wicked deeds. He treated women poorly and used them as objects or toys for his own sensual pleasure. The Canadian prime minister, nice guy that he is, marches in gay pride, gay pride parades and promotes lifestyles that run counter, counter <clears throat> to biblical truth. In Europe, they need Jesus too. And I mention that because do you realize that these are the countries that cradled the spiritual inheritance and now they've become pagan societies? You know, it's bad here. I used to live in Canada. It's a little worse there and it's worse in Europe. And that's, you know, people go to Switzerland and Germany to, to, to find men of Simons and all those people's stone, tombstones and that's not going to save anybody. Those are pagan societies over there. And it's coming here. <clears throat> you know, we can almost, all of us, trace our lineage back to those countries. Uh, recently, not too long ago, Grace read me the stories, the books by Lorene Platt about the um, Platt family's immigration from Prussia and Europe to the Ukraine and then to South America North America, which is a lot of them went to Canada. And I found it fascinating because I've worked and know with a lot of Russian Mennonites. She wrote the book, Returning Home and Crossing the Distance. And if, if you would like to get a real good dose of Mennonite history in story form, read those books. And you'll learn where the Holderman people came from and uh, the different uh, clans of the Russian people. You know, most of us came from old Mennonites from Europe, but... <clears throat> The thing that you find repetitively in those stories is that in good times, those people lost out spiritually. And under severe persecution, they thrived. And I don't, want, I don't pray that God would send persecution to us. But you know what's happening in Ukraine today could happen here uh, very quickly. We live in a very unstable society. I have a quote. To our forefathers, the Christian faith was an experience. To our fathers, it was an inheritance. To our generation, it is a convenience. And to our children, it is a nuisance. 
And this quote came from a man that was emphasizing the importance of raising children in a genuine, glowing Christian environment. Do our children grow up thinking that church is just a nuisance? Do we really need to go to church tonight? Can I just come after Sunday school? God forbid. I taught Bible school, winter Bible schools, for 12 years. And I've taught in Asia at Igo for several years now. And <clears throat> you've got to jump through a lot of hoops to get to Igo. Your resume has to be pretty good. Um, <clears throat> Galen Schrock, is, um, he Facebooks. I don't do any of that. But he, he started looking back at all the people that went through Calvary Bible School, Maranatha Bible School, and Heritage Bible School, and do you realize that the casualty rate is about 25 to 30 percent? These children come to Bible school, they get on fire with God, they make commitments and go home to the same old, and their churches and bickering and fighting, they get discouraged, or they meet somebody and off they go out and they leave the Anabaptist faith. That's too high. And so one of the board members of I go did the same thing, and it's about 16%. There's people that paid a good piece of money to go to Asia to study for a year and come home and give up. Why? Probably they've learned it from their mom and dad. In Colossians chapter 2, it's a chapter there, it's a good chapter, and it talks about that Jesus is all I need. And He is. He owns all the real estate of our spiritual inheritance. Do you know, so many generations of people, they take their faith down to the flea market. They're done with it. They sell it. Why? And that should concern us. And several years ago, we went to my mother-in-law's funeral in Red Lake, Ontario. And we stopped 100 miles south of Red Lake. That's where you can use the restroom. There's a filling station there. Because it's a long ways up the road there to Red Lake. And as I was going... In the restroom, out come the man that used to be my supervisor, and he was raised devout beachy. Us VS guys used to call him a, a Boy Scout leader because we thought he barked at us and ordered us around and made un, unreasonable expectations. And as he was coming out, his wife was coming out of the ladies' restroom, and here she was in a curly perm and blue jeans and... And I told Grace, I, I'm going to go talk to those people. And she says, no, you're not. I said, when I get home, I'm going to write them a letter. And she says, no, you're not. you, you got to settle down. But those people took their faith to the flea market. You know, you're not supposed to take this wine jug, but take your faith to the flea market anytime you want. There's something wrong. James 2, chapter 8. Oh. Jesus is all I need. 
Because Jesus is all I need for salvation, those of us who are serious followers of the meek and lowly Jesus will want to respond with lifestyles that are fitting and model our kinsman redeemer. James 2.18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith with my works. Guard your faith and doctrine closely. Your children are depending on you. Hebrews 5.14, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. And when we have trained ourselves through the constant use of scriptures, we should have learned to distinguish what's good and bad. We don't need mother and dad to tell us that anymore. We should have grown. We should have matured. We're not spiritual babes. But yet, so many people in their 40s and 50s and beyond say, I'm done. And they go to the flea market and put it on the table and walk away. The mark of spiritual maturity is not how much we understand but how much we use of what we've learned and know. In the spiritual realm, the opposite of ignorance is not mere knowledge, but loyal obedience. You will never understand all the scriptures, but please practice what you do know. One of the things that Paul mentions in the scriptures that are profitable for doctrine and for teaching, good doctrine is important. It determines how we live and think and view the issues of life. And that is so crucial that our conduct towards God and others is affected by our doctrine. Poor doctrine makes excuses for sloppy living. And we could go off on Calvinism and Protestantism. and You know what I'm talking about. Poor doctrine excuses sloppy Christian living. Beware of the temptation to live the North American dream. The pursuit of wealth, pleasure, and a life focused on self. You know, Naboth would not compromise inheritance for a promise of better things here. And he paid for it with his life. He said, King Ahab, I'm sorry. I, this is not mine to give away. And they took his life. But yet we have this vast inheritance worth so much more than a vineyard. Off to the flea market. It happens every day. <clears throat> Can future generations count on you, on me, to safeguard our spiritual inheritance and pass it down to your children and your children's children for many generations as the Lord delays his return it's time to close, but I want to read you a story. <clears throat> this comes from Idaho Gary Miller. <clears throat> it was on a construction site in the late 1980s that I first met Andre. He had immigrated from Romania, and as we worked, he shared the struggles of his past. His story was similar to those and many other believers who escaped from communist countries during the 1970s, Andre had been part of the underground church. Notice, underground church, the persecuted church, is not home church. Don't let people who do you with that. Home church is not the Acts model. 
But the underground church or the persecuted church is what you have to do sometimes. <clears throat> I got sidetracked there, sorry. He knew uh, what it meant to choose Christ, though opposed by culture, public opinion, and threatening government officials. He'd grown up listening to horror stories from church leaders just returning from the torture chambers, and he understood the reality of persecution and attending worship services with one ear turned to the sermon and the other listening for the secret police. It had been a constant reality to him. This was the Christianity that he had always known. Finally, after years of meeting in secret and smuggling Bibles and hiding from the police, Andre had an opportunity to escape. And with the help of believers, he was concealed in a vehicle and taken across the border into a neighboring country. The situation was so dangerous that his friends had packed Andre into a tiny metal compartment and welded it shut to avoid detection by the police. Finally, after hours of hiding in a cramped position, and struggling to get enough air through the tiny holes drilled in the side of the box, Andre arrived safely across the border. After a while, his family was able to join him there, and together they escaped to America. I met Andre several years later, but recalling his escape and that first taste of freedom was still thrilling to him. And with bright eyes and an animated voice, he loved to tell in broken English of those first worship services, the singing, the joy of singing, without fear, and the abundance of Bibles were a blessing almost too good to be true. America was a wonderful place to live. No one looked over your shoulder during the services, and they were never interrupted, and they had more food than a family could eat. This was obviously the blessing of God. But several years had passed, and at the time I worked with Andre, he was beginning to have some doubts. And though he was still thankful for the liberty of his country, he had made some observations that alarmed him. Andre had watched the lives of many of the believers that had come from Romania and was concerned about the changes they were making. He knew these people. He had observed their faith in the midst of intense persecution. He had seen them stand against a fierce and determined assault by the government authorities and watched them shine like cities on a hill. We sent our children to public school where the teachers taught them day after day that there was no God. And Andre said, I don't remember of even one of them succumbing to that teaching. We knew what those atheistic teachers were pounding into our children. And as soon as they arrived home, we spent time teaching them again from the Word of God. It had been a great time of spiritual warfare. The fight was intense and the battle lines were clear. The conflict was black and white. And everyone was aware of Satan's tactics. And parents recognized our own, their own weaknesses and the need for constant prayer and vigilance in the fight. But then... Everything changed. After moving to America, the Romanian believers enjoyed peace and prosperity. Their dramatic change was unbelievable. No longer did someone watch by the door during services, nor did they need to hide their Bibles in the attic. But Andre noticed that in this great land of freedom, these same people who so faithfully stood under suppression 
and having trouble dealing with, were having trouble dealing with their liberty. Their young people were being heavily influenced by the fashions and fads of the day. Older members of the church were losing their original passion for the gospel. It was becoming more difficult to interest people in regular church attendance. Prayer didn't seem quite as essential. Fasting was a thing of the past. Daily devotions with the family didn't seem as important. And some marriages were starting to struggle. The Romanian believers had come to America with a strong work ethic and many became prosperous. And now with all the business concerns and newfound wealth to enjoy their zeal for the Lord had diminished. One day, after sharing some of his concerns for these persecuted but now prosperous Romanians, Andre made this startling statement. I have considered, he said, of moving my family back to Romania. Now that was the, before the fall of Nicolae Ceausescu, the communist regime. Persecution and torture were still regular occurrences in Romania. Was it possible that Andre was considering leaving a country of ease and influence and moving back to a setting like that? And I remember going home after those discussions and pondering is prosperity so dangerous that a man knowingly would take his family back into persecution from America? I had been taught from my youth that to thank God regularly for the freedom and prosperity that we enjoy. And I had learned to think of America as a blessed place to live. And it was a place of spiritual and financial opportunity, a land of comfort, ease, and security. But what was Andre seeing that I was failing to observe? And why was he concerned about the influence our culture might have on his children? And Jesus told a parable one day about a sower who went forth to plant seeds. And he talked about the seed that fell on stony ground and seed that landed by the wayside and seed that fell on hard ground and good ground. <clears throat> Those three types of soil each had a direct impact on the harvest. Jesus' listeners would have to understand this. Hard-packed soil, shallow-top soil are not good places to raise crops. Good crops come from good soil where seeds can grow and produce into a bountiful harvest. But Jesus went on to describe another place where seeds landed, and this time he said nothing about the condition of the soil. He didn't say if the soil was good, bad, stony, or shallow. The problem with the crop in this area wasn't the soil, but the thorns. And I think it's safe to assume that it would, was good soil. The soil would have been capable of producing a wonderful crop except for the thorns. And as I remember those discussions with Andre, I believe the parable of the sower explains the difference on our perspective. As I looked at America, I was seeing good soil. It was a place of complete religious freedom where a man could serve the Lord and raise his family <coughs> Excuse me, without hindrance. Andre saw this as well. He was aware of the amazing freedom and opportunity, but he also saw the thorns. He saw the effect the thorns had on spiritual growth and that Jesus said that the man who receives the seed among thorns is he that heareth the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, 
choke out the word and he becometh unfruitful. God knew man's tendency and his admonition, admonition can be summed up in one sentence from Moses. Beware when thou forget not the Lord thy God. And throughout history, we have struggled to maintain a focus on God during times of influence. And it is hard to remember God when things are going well. And there is something about a shift from poverty to, from poverty to prosperity that destabilizes a man. <coughs> Excuse me. Several years ago, uh, Grace and I go to Canada pretty regular, and, and I always kind of <clears throat> dread going up to the immigration office at the border. And those people are trained to terrorize you or make you feel uneasy. But I often think that it's maybe it's a little bit like when we get to the Jordan River and, and have to cross. And have we taken care of everything? Because they're going to ask us. They've been trained to know what to ask. I don't know if they can just look at you and, yeah, he's bringing this or he's bringing that. And so we went to see Grace's parents, and on our way home, I had a cousin that lived in Dryden, Ontario, was working for Northern Youth Programs at the time, and we stopped in to see her. And there was a girl from our home community there that was flying home that night. And... <clears throat> She said, hey, he says, I don't, would you take my luggage home that way I don't have to check it in and pay that $40 or whatever? And I didn't want to, but, you know, she was a girl and she was asking and you'd be nice to girls. And, hey, yeah, sure, put it in the trunk. And so, so I drove the next three and a half hours down to International Falls and the closer I got to International Falls, the more I wasn't feeling good about the prospects of crossing the Jordan River, the Rainy River there, you know. Uh, what was I going to tell those guys? So I sat there on the bridge and the lights changed. Finally, it was my turn to pull up to the U.S. Customs. And the man come out and he says, um, are you bringing something across for somebody else? And it was just like the Holy Spirit told him, you know. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. I said, what is it? He says, I don't know. It's a girl from our community's luggage. Did you look in it? No, sir. It's a girl's luggage. I didn't look in it. <laughs> he said, well, you're crazy. Don't you ever, never bring something that you didn't look in or that's not yours. It's just pull right over here. And I, I knew it was going downhill from there real quick. And so we pulled over there, and he continued to berate us that we was the silliest Americans that he ever saw. The very idea that you would bring stuff across that you don't know what is. Or you didn't even look in it. And so he says, you all go inside there. And so we went inside, and there was a lady official, U.S. Customs, that continued to reduce us to a pulp. And she, she wasn't any happier than he was. And between uh, her rants, I looked out, and him and another guy were going through our car. They had their guns, and I don't remember if they had a dog or not, but they were sniffing. And they were really good at opening all the suitcases, but very bad. They didn't know how to pack. 
just suitcases busted open. They went through our stuff and they didn't find any contraband, any bombs, guns, or drugs, I guess. And he came in and fussed at me some more and said we could go. And so we kind of went out and put the stuff in. And I saw the girls' luggage after all, you know. <laughs> it was kind of an unpleasant experience. The next year we went up. One of the men, there was a professional trapper that lived next door to where Grace grew up, and Ontario had changed the trap laws, and he uh, had to get rid of these leg hold traps that they had, and so he knew my boys were trappers, and, and so he said, well, I'm going to send those down to your boys, because I can no longer use them. And he boxed them up, and put his name on it and his trapper's license, and he said it was a donation to my boys. And I didn't feel good about that either. <laughs> but I went <clears throat> down to International Falls, and I had that same heart palpitations. And it was finally my time to pull up at custom immigration. The man came out and says, um, what are you bringing? I, I see you got some flour there, and Grace likes Robin Hood flour. And, and so we always stop there in Fort Francis and get some. And <clears throat> he said, what else are you bringing? Well, how did he know? I said, traps. <laughs> what kind of traps? Furry animal traps. <laughs> Open your trunk. And he went back there and he got that box and he started shaking it. Clunk, I heard the trunk go shut and he come around. Welcome home, he said. And he was as happy as Larry. But you see, tonight, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're thinking that you're going to take your spiritual inheritance and sell it at the flea market, or you're trying to get stuff across the border into heaven. You're not going to do either one and get to heaven. God has entrusted you with a spiritual inheritance, and you can't take stuff across the border. But yet, that's such a temptation for us. I'm going to ask you to sing a verse of just as I am. I'm not going to plead with you. I'm not going to beg with you. The, the Holy Spirit is much better at that than I am. I'm going to sing one verse, and if God's speaking to your heart, you can stand to your feet. Shall we sing just as I am? <clears throat> 235. Thank you for your attention. Uh, let's stand for closing prayer, and after which, uh, Rollin, would you lead in the Lord's Prayer? <clears throat>